Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Sharks are cool. It's undeniable. And love them or hate them, they're one of the most iconic groups of animals in popular culture. But they also open the doors to some pretty cool science. And in today's episode, we're going to find out how their genomes are helping us to understand the evolution of marine biodiversity hotspots as we explore the recent Heredity paper, Genomic Insights into the Historical and Contemporary Demographics of the Grey Reef Shark. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Paolo Momigliano, and I work a little bit at the intersection of evolutionary biology and conservation and management of uh, marine species. Specifically, I like to ask questions that are interesting, hopefully, but also on species and system for which we can have some societal benefit as well. I'm now, uh, I have a fellowship at the University of Vigo, but some of the work that we're talking about today, I did while working at the University of Helsinki and before even during my PhD at Macquarie University in Australia. Mm, Perfect. Well, welcome to the podcast. And speaking of marine species, that's what this paper is on today. And I guess this paper focuses on the grey reef shark. So to start off, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about them and why you find them interesting. Well, grey reef sharks, Carcarinus amblerincus, are are coral reef-associated sharks. And in healthy coral reefs, you know, far away from human impact, they can be extremely abundant and they can make up for a very substantial proportion of predatory biomass. So they they are potentially important predators, but we know that they are facing threats throughout their range. We know that they decline dramatically in the Great Barrier Reef. We know that they are targeted for their fins, for example, in eastern Indonesia. And studies across the globe have shown that they decrease substantially in, in many places. So there's not a consensus of what their ecological importance is. If you talk to some people, they will tell you that if you take them out of a community, it would be a disaster. And others will tell you that actually there is a lot of redundancy in the ecological role of predators in coral reefs, and so they are maybe not as important than some people say. But among the reef sharks, they are the largest, and they are the ones that uh, are a little bit more unique in the sense they can feed on larger preys than most other predators that we find on coral reefs. So they are potentially quite important. And they're also interesting from a population genetics perspective, because they show an interesting combination of high site fidelity. So from tagging study, we know that they spend a lot of time, you know, within individual reefs or in small regions, but they also have a potential for long-range dispersal. So tagging studies uh, have shown that they can at times move for hundreds of kilometers. So they are interesting from a number of different uh, point of view. And also they're really cool. <laughs> so if you work, if you have to work, working with them in the field is nice. Uh, they're beautiful animals and uh, it's, it's very pleasant to go and look for them. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, they are very cool animals and it sounds as though there's a lot of very interesting things you could study about them. And I'm really curious about what it was that you specifically set out to study in this paper. Well, like a lot of the fauna of coral reefs, in many places, this population cannot be too old because coral reefs have changed constantly during glacial cycles. And uh, some places like the Great Barrier Reef only formed in their current uh, shape a few thousand years ago. So one of the questions that we wanted to know was uh, where do this population come from? You know, what is the origin of them? We also wanted to know how changes in sea level during the last glacial cycle may have affected connectivity between these populations. And I mean, these questions are important for a number of reasons. 
first of all, we are interested in knowing where biodiversity comes from in general, right? So this system allows us to test the hypothesis that uh, the coral triangle, that very high diversity region that is between Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines and Papua New Guinea, can act as a source of range expansion from which the rest of the range was uh, colonized. And uh, I mean, these questions are not only important for knowing, but because they allow us to interpret what we see today. So uh, if you're interested in understanding connectivity, population size of uh, a species, you are likely at some point going to use genetic method and you're going to get statistics that you need to interpret. Now, you can obtain this parameter for simple statistic, but this assumes that the population are at equilibrium. So if you look at the population structure, it can be due to current migration and current population size, or it can be due in part to the effect of what happened before. And so to understand connectivity, to understand population structure, to interpret the statistics, we need to know what the demographic history of a species is. Then we also wanted to get some estimates of current effective population size. Yeah, it it sounds really interesting. We've had a few episodes now on marine connectivity, and it's always such a fascinating area to hear people talk about. But I'm really curious about what it was that you did in this study, because it sounds as though you're combining some really interesting analyses with what I'm assuming is some really beautiful fieldwork. Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing we did, we had to collect a lot of sharks across the world. We use about 500 individuals collecting along a very large proportion of the species range. And uh, I have to say that many different authors in this paper spend a lot of time collecting this data in the field. So, for example, I did a lot of field work in the Great Barrier Reef. Um, German Busser and Loren Viola did uh, in uh, New Caledonia. Uh, I did some work in Western Australia. And uh, we got some samples donated also from people who had collected sharks in other places. So we spent a lot of time at sea catching sharks, taking samples. I mean, we, we literally need to fish them, usually with nice. ropes and hooks, uh, and then uh, bring them in, try to hurt them as little as possible, and then release them as quickly as possible. And that brings a lot of interesting encounters, of course, because uh, when you try to catch a reef sharks, you end up many times catching things that you didn't plan, and uh, sometimes much bigger things, <laughs> which created some pretty interesting fieldwork. Uh, We hooked uh, a few times tiger sharks, which was very fun. (laughs) (laughs) Fun and dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we spent a a lot of time in the ocean in uh, very beautiful reefs. So it was an excellent field work. It sounds incredible. But then once we got uh, all the samples, we did all the fun parts. It was years of, of course, uh, analysis and laboratory work. So the main idea was uh, we wanted to test if the current population across the range that we sample from New Caledonia in the east to Chagos Archipelago in the west and to Indonesia in the north, were coming from a recent range expansion. And the thing is that when you have a recent range expansion, that expansion leaves a transient special patterns of genetic diversity. So when you move away from the center of origin of that population expansion, genetic diversity declines. So if you think about humans, for example, the highest genetic diversity is in Africa, as even today, as you move further away, 
you have a negative correlation of the distance from the center of phonogies and the genetic diversity of the population. I did not know that. So the same, the same happens in all the other animals, of course. And uh, what we have done is that once we got samples from across most of the species range, we sequenced tens of thousands of small fragments across the genome and then got estimates of genetic diversity, pi, within each population and heterozygosity. Uh, we then used a method that was developed uh, by Rachamandran for analyzing human population, where we looked at uh, negative correlation between putative center of origin and genetic diversity. So effectively, we sampled thousands of uh, putative center of origin and then look at negative correlation between uh, the distance of each population from that putative center of origin and, and genetic diversity. And the point in space, which showed the highest negative correlation with genetic diversity, in theory, should be a putative center of origin. So we use that approach to understand when a potential range expansion started from. And then we use some other method that estimate the effective population size back in time, starting from the frequencies of alleles, in order to see if we see signatures of increasing population size at some point in the past, which if all these populations come from the same center of origin, it should show more or less at the same time. We then also investigated the effect of the Torres Strait. So the emergence of submergence of the Torres Strait, which is uh, that tiny piece of sea that connects the Arafura Sea on north of Australia to the Pacific Ocean. So it's a major point of connection uh, between the Pacific from one side and the Western Pacific and the Eastern Indian Ocean. And uh, we tried to look at the effect that they had on migration between Indonesian population and Australian population using uh, two population demographic model. When we can see whether migration stayed the same throughout the divergence time of two population or migration changed by testing models such as isolation with continuous migration or secondary contact, models in which at some point there is no migration, then migration is re-established. And the Torres Strait, of course, is a very shallow strait. So it has been submerged and re-emerged through glacial cycle continuously. So we thought that that may have an effect on connectivity between uh, these populations. Mm, incredible. I mean, it sounds like you have a really sort of fascinating range of questions and methods. And I guess the sort of big question is, what were some of the key things that you were finding? Well, I guess the biggest uh, answer we got is that the current population of grey sharks are the result, most likely, of a population expansion that occurred within the past 100,000 generations. So reasonably recently. This population today are still not at equilibrium because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to detect this population expansion. So meaning that uh, the patterns of genetic diversity we see across the species range still reflect today that history of range expansion. And uh, this is important when you think about population structure and you think about genetic differentiation from a conservation genetic perspective as well. And uh, using this method where we looked at the, at the location where there is the highest negative correlation between distance from that point and genetic diversity, it seems that that uh, expansion started somewhere in the coron triangle. So again, it started in that very high biodiversity area 
which uh, has been proposed as being a net source of oceanic biodiversity. And uh, interestingly, this is not the only shark species for which uh, this conclusion has been reached. Actually, there's another paper in this same journal by Maisano del Ser, and they showed that uh, the center of origin of current populations of the black deep reef sharks is probably also in the same region. So there's some patterns start to emerge across species. So this, is, uh, this was uh, exciting, but not so surprising, meaning that uh, we thought that that could be the case. But the difference in genetic diversity between these populations is not very strong. It's milder than in other species. And we think that is in part because the crater sharks can move around more than some other species. So some of the pattern of genetic diversity that derive from that expansion have been already partially masked, perhaps, but not completely. So we still see a very strong negative correlation between distance from the coral triangle and genetic diversity. In theory, that could be due to two different processes, right? It could be due to a range expansion, but it could also be the product of another process where let's say that you have, for example, an expansion not from one point, but from two different refugia. And then this two range expansion eventually meet in the coral triangle. That could also produce a similar pattern, but it would not produce the pattern we have seen in this species in terms of changes in effective population size in each population. So using a method called survey plot, where we reconstruct the effective population size back in time, we show that uh, in every single population, in every single location, apart from the Chagos archipelago, there is a sign of expansion, of population expansion at the same time, effectively, somewhere between 40 and 90,000 generations ago. So that pattern cannot be produced by this uh, double refuge hypothesis. So we, we think that this really is uh, a range expansion that probably started somewhere in the Coral Triangle and happened quite recently. And the transient uh, genetic diversity pattern produced by the range expansion are still observable today. The other thing that we have uh, found is that uh, when we did these two population models, looking at changes in gene flow through times between the North Great Barrier Reef and Indonesia, we find indeed that uh, the best models that we found are secondary contact model. So out of the four best models selected, three are models in which uh, the patterns of gene flow changes through time. And in particular, the population diverged initially with little or no gene flow, and gene flow was re-established a couple of thousands generations ago, which is something that could be somehow related to the emergence of submergence of the Torres Strait, although it is difficult to interpret because to actually translate the results of this demographic model in, in time, in years, you have uh, a couple of parameters that you need that you don't really know. You need to know the mutation rate, which you can only guess from other studies, and uh, you need to know the generation time, which is surprisingly not so easy to, to understand for population with overlapping generations. So we can't be too certain exactly of what time the population diverged and gene flow was it was re-established, but certainly there was a recent increase in gene flow between these two populations, which is coincident in time when one population models show an increase in population size. And of course, the two things can be related because the effective population size is not 
a proxy of the census size, but is a proxy of something else. It's uh, effectively can be described as the size of an idealized population that will experience the same amount of genetic drift as the population that you're sampling. And so both increases in the, the census size of a population or changes to gene flow can affect the affected population size. So it's a little bit difficult to say exactly why we see an increase in affected population size in recent time in the Great Barrier Reef and in Indonesia, uh, an increase that we don't see in the rest of the population. And if that is due to the fact that this population really did increase in size in the last few thousand years, or whether it is an effect of the re-establishment of gene flow following a period in which migration was very low. We don't, we don't really know that. Mm, fantastic. I mean, it sounds as though you found some really interesting things about the demographic history of these great reef sharks, even if there are still some questions floating about. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting is that obviously you've mentioned conservation a few times. Obviously, it's this big biodiversity hotspot. So I wonder what you think um, the sort of big key message in this paper is. What's it telling us more broadly about marine systems, marine biodiversity and connectivity? Well, I mean, one thing is that together with other recent papers is telling us that uh, the Coral Triangle not only is the high biodiversity of spot today, but has played a central role possibly in the origin of coral reef associated fauna elsewhere. So that uh, it is a net source of transoceanic diversity, as Sean Evans put in a nice paper uh, a few years ago in Biology Letters. So... Now evidence is accumulating that uh, not only it played an important role as a center of survival during climatic oscillation from which uh, new waves of colonization started. The important point from a conservation and management perspective is uh, can be summarized easily as patterns of genetic diversity that we observe today and effective population size that we observe today. They are not necessarily caused by present day Uh, migration rates and population size. They're often the relic of uh, something that happened a long time ago. And uh, we need to consider that when we develop management strategies, when we design conservation units based uh, on genetic data as well. I'll make an example. So if you have uh, a population expansion and you have two populations that today exchange very few genes, but they share very recent ancestry, if you use FST to determine population structure, you you may get a very small value, but that's not because these population are exchanging genes. It's because they are not at migration drift equilibrium. So you, you just didn't have enough time for genetic differentiation to build up. And the same is true for effective population size. You might have very small population that look like they have a much larger size than it will be in a few thousand generations, because effectively you did not have enough time for the genetic diversity within that population to reflect their recent history. So I think this is something that is very important, and it's somehow often not considered enough in conservation genetic studies. And uh, this paper also provides some context for uh, to another manuscript we just published this week in uh, Ecography, where we use this model system to identify barrier of gene flow and, and design hierarchical conservation units. So in, in that paper, we 
we use uh, a Cscape genomics approach to come up with predictive models of population differentiation. And based on this predictive model, we can kind of come up with uh, prediction of uh, genetic differentiation of population we didn't sample. But one thing that we talk about in the paper is exactly this, that uh, what most of this Cscape genomic approach use are still estimate of genetic differentiation based on allele frequencies. So summary statistics like FST or DST or that uh, in some cases, uh, they are still correlated with the parameters you want to understand, but their absolute value are not as easily interpretable if your population are not at equilibrium. And this is pervasive as a pervasive thing in marine ecosystem where you have large populations and you have uh, cyclical fluctuations in uh, sea level and populations are always changing. So these, these are things we need to consider. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you've made a very good pitch for population genetics to go and read this paper because obviously there is a lot in it and there's lots of very interesting things that you touch upon. And I wonder, just to finish up, if you could remind us what your paper is called and also tell us about your co-authors and anyone else who's helped bring us this paper. Yes, so the paper is called Genomic Insights into the Historical and Contemporary Demographics of the Grey Reef Sharks. The authors are Cameron Walsh and me, who are share first authors, and then German Bebusari, William Robbins, Lucas Bonin, Cecile Fevelot, Jeremy Kiska, Devi Mouillot, Laurent Viola, and Stephanie Manel. Well, we would like to thank also everyone who donated samples at some point and who helped collect samples in remote region. Vanessa Jaite helped a lot of sampling in very remote places in Indonesia. And uh, I mean, many of these samples come from my PhD and were used before in other papers. So I like to also thank volunteers and my supervisors from my PhD who helped with fieldwork and at that time. So Adam Stowe and Rob Harcourt. And uh, that's it, I think. Perfect. I mean, it's a great example of collaborative science. And thank you for taking the time to share this work with us and tell us all about this really cool system. No, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Paolo. You can find their paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. Now, usually this is where we'd end the episode. But before we do, I want to tell you about something fun. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. And to celebrate Gregor Mendel's 200th birthday anniversary, they're running an art competition for UK primary and secondary schools. What they want is students to submit artwork based on Mendel's discovery of the rules of inheritance. It can be a drawing, a sculpture, really, it can be whatever you consider art. And best of all, there are prizes. The winning artwork will feature on the cover of Heredity, the winning student will get a £100 voucher, and their school will get £500 towards science equipment. To find out more, head over to genetics.org.uk forward slash hap hyphen p hyphen birthday hyphen Mendel. I'll put a link in the podcast description. But that's us for today. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.